well, welcome Watermark. How are we doing? It's awesome to be together. Uh, it's good to have our friends online with us and as well as all the campuses. It's awesome, especially just to be here present with those that I'm present with. Hey, before we dive into this uh, fun series uh, that we're working on, I just want to do something uh, to kind of clean up a little bit from last week. Because I heard from two friends. One was a, a personal phone call. The other was an email. And actually, another conversation that went with email that I just want to share with you. So first of all, my buddy Amy, it was one of the stories I shared about the amazing grace and work of God. Amy is the one that, um, you know, a beautiful friend of mine with red hair that was uh, up here. And we just talked about how God had uh, miraculously pulled her out of a life of real brokenness. She grew up in a home where she was tragically sexually abused. And then um, without just love and affirmation in a healthy way for men. She continued to give herself over to ways that she felt really valued by um, having men be attracted to her through the sex industry. And for her, it was pornography and videos and things like that. And I talked about how God um, brought her to her senses when a phone call came to her where a guy specifically offered her tens of thousands of dollars to come and have her um, spend a weekend with him. And uh, I don't think I was clear, at least in one of the services, about the fact that she did not take that phone call. And uh, Amy just called me and said, hey, Todd, I just had some friends come to me. And she said, listen, had I done that, had I done that for years, it wouldn't have changed anything about how God loves me. And I wouldn't have been uh, any more grateful for grace or ashamed of the grace I needed had that happened. But, you know, I, I, I'm wide open about my story, and it just... It hurts to my friends who came to me and said, Amy, I didn't realize that that was a part of your story. And she said, well, it, it, it wasn't. Todd just was a little not careful with his words right there. And I, <laughs> I asked her forgiveness, right? And, um, and Amy and I both said that we wanted to make sure that she was really clear about the fact that it didn't bother her other than it kind of confused her community. And um, so I just asked her and her husband forgiveness for that and not being more clear. Uh, but Amy wanted me to say, look, we have friends, we have members of this body that have made those decisions. Amy's just story is one of many. And uh, she doesn't believe she's more able to approach God because she didn't do certain things or that her story is any less valuable to God because she hadn't. Um, and so I, I just go, man, Amy, let me just, as publicly as I kind of messed up that clarity, uh, correct that so that your friends can know that you hadn't held back anything from them, and we can just celebrate the grace of God. Now, what's interesting is I also got another email, um, and I actually had a guy walk up to me after the, uh, the first service and say something to me, and this was an email from somebody that's just attending that isn't a part of our body yet that just said, hey, do I belong at Watermark? Because every story around here is amazing and dramatic, and I feel like if I wasn't living in a gutter, you know, addicted to crystal meth with uh, in jail for six years and surviving this, that, that I, I, I don't, my story's not worth celebrating. You know, I, the, the, my friend walked up and he goes, look, I, I'm glad you said that because, you know, my parents fed me when I was little and they loved me and they didn't leave me. <laughs> and I know I need Jesus. And I want to tell you, I think the most amazing stories of grace that we have here, I think the most radical testimony that could exist in the world today is that maybe like my kids, that you grew up in a home where your parents loved each other and loved you, that you didn't have a father wound because your dad was present. And he taught you about the kindness of God. And yet in the midst of the covenant of grace that was over you, you came to a point in your own life somewhere where you realized that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And whether you're Mary Magdalene or uh, a prostitute or whether you're a leper or a garrison demoniac or um, somebody who by and large has been moral in the world's perspective, you need a savior. 
And the fact that you have found your desperate need for the grace of God, despite the fact that you don't have many scars to show for it, is a miracle of grace. As we, even in the Watermark News story this week, you know, an old Puritan pastor said, until um, sin is bitter, salvation will never be sweet. And, and, and until, uh, well, uh, the miracle of grace is that some of you who don't have deep scars and haven't drank deeply from the bitter waters of sin are still aware of the bitter sin in your life and your great need for Jesus. And so, you know, I, I just had a chance just to kind of go, yeah, I'm not trying to conflate a story and I'm not trying to act like this story isn't amazing. What a testimony that because God's grace was on you through others early, you have been free from bondage to sin that reigned in you until you became a servant of Christ. That's a story. And if that's your story, man, celebrate it to the glory of God. All right? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you love us all. Those of us who have experienced kindness through you in the context of a believing community from early ages, where we then personally made it our own, that you didn't become a shepherd for others, but you became our shepherd, our savior. I thank you for the grace that's on those people. I thank you for the grace that's available to so many of us who have made tragic decisions, who were left vulnerable because we weren't taught and we weren't loved or because we rebelled against the love that we were given. And we have scars and the bitterness of sin wasn't just an aftertaste, it was our constant taste. And then you reminded us that we're yours if we'll just come home. And you ran to us in grace slaughtered the fatted calf. Help us, Lord, to know that the cross is ours, each of us, and that you are good. And if there's anyone here who's not yet understood that you love them and you wanna be their God, not a God, would that just become clear today? Thank you for what you're teaching us. Thank you for a chance to celebrate you together in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're doing a series called How He Built This, and it's uh, important that you catch this. How He, capital H, God, it's not how we built this. Get your pronouns straight. This is not a work of any man, not a work of any one group of people. We've been talking about now um, three different things. We've talked about how abiding dependence upon God is how this has happened. We believe that it's His power mightily working within us that has created this amazing community of friends that are a source of grace to others, we, we believe that God was going to do something great through us and through anybody whose hearts were completely his. And, and so as we celebrated last week, this is what it means to have a heart that's completely his and to believe that God is still alive and doing radical things that will glorify his son and help people today. And we're living in the middle of it. And today we're going to talk about the third way that he built this with this certain specific mindset that frankly, marked our lives. We, um, we have one job. We've always believed we have one job. And we have been focused on that one job, and we haven't cared about how it was received when we did this one job. And he built this because we have been committed to faithfulness from the very beginning and not success. We have been committed to being biblical, not big. We had one job. Like, when you hear me say that, you got one job, right? It should probably immediately thrust into your mind's eye, the memes that go out there, right? You ever seen these? He had one job and you didn't do your one job, right? When you see somebody who didn't do the one job they had 
And it's just so straightforward and simple, it's tragic, right? So here's one, right? This guy had one job, put the round buns in the hamburger bun bag. The long skinny ones, that's a hot dog, right? You got one stinking job. How about this? Make a medal for us so we can celebrate the winner, all right? So unless that's a drinking contest, this is not a good medal, right? And you got one job, let's help people make their way down the staircase safely. Right? They're not going to spend six years on each staircase where they get progressively taller, and so you don't need to build it that way. Right? They move quickly down through this. Right? You got one job. Lay the bricks down in a way that makes some sense. Right? Now look, this one you can extend the guy some grace. He's like, okay, there's a little puzzle here. Can we figure it out? But it was his only job. You think he figured it out. But apparently bricklaying is much harder than we all realize. Okay? <laughs> And so maybe that job is not as easy as I think, right? You got one job, okay? Put the cheese on the burger. That's where it goes. We don't need to see that it's a cheeseburger. We'll know that because we'll mark it on the outside. You got one job. And I love this one, right? Let the people know that they can't park here, right? Don't say this is the fry lane. If you park here, they're all going to die and burn. I love those. And there's so many. I'm going to show a little self-control right here because I got one job, which is to preach the word, not to make you laugh and look at endless memes. But we've got one job, and, and from the beginning, we knew what that job was. That job was to serve our king and to be um, servants and stewards of the mysteries of God. First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, tells us who we are. We are um, a specific group of people. We have a job, and we are part of something. That something is we are a chosen race. God said to you, people who know God and know our, their need for a Savior, who by the grace of God have come to that understanding that even though they've done crazy things, they're loved, or even though they've been grown up in a covenant of grace, they need to accept the love of God. We are a chosen people. We're part of something, a chosen tribe, a chosen race. That's who we are. We are called, it says, to be a royal priesthood, which means you're part of something and you're to do something. You're to be a community of priests. I say this all the time. Every week, what we do is we gather together the church of God. We don't go to church. We gather the church, all of us who believe, and we are a group of priests. We're pastors of one another, servants of Christ, stewards of the mystery of God. This is a pastor's conferring. And we're equipping and reminding ourselves of the greatness of our God and remembering how to respond to him. You are part of something to do something and then a holy nation in a very specific way. And we are here for a specific reason. And that is to proclaim his excellencies. And... Um, Tell of the one who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, the scripture says. And so we knew we had one job because we are part of something to do something in a specific way for a specific reason. And that one job of ours was to focus on being biblical and not big. To define success not by those who attended our services or who contributed to it with their lives or their times or their talent or their treasure, but to get people to be consecrated to their king, to follow him, not to attend religious services, but to tend to the business of God's people. And we didn't really care how successful it was. 
We didn't want to get a bunch of people attending religious services or busily involving themselves in religious activities. We wanted to call them to be disciples. We said that we were going to measure our success by our ability to be and make disciples. And we weren't going to worry about how many disciples there were. Because we knew that big was neither good nor bad. It just was. Big isn't good. Small isn't good. Good is good. And we were focused on that from the very beginning. There is a a story in scripture in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, where um, Jesus is interacting with a couple of friends of his. They were sisters, uh, one named Martha, one named Mary. You you may be fairly familiar with it. I'm going to read it to you. And I'm going to show you what happens if you are an individual, though, that doesn't get the one thing you need to do right. If you get things out of order, if you misprioritize religious activity with, um, if you will, religious affection, you can be religiously busy, you can be religiously attending something and not be the people of God. You cannot have religious affections and not be a doer of the word. But a lot of folks are just really happy with religious activity and religious affections. And I'm going to show you the problem with that. Because we wanted to make sure, okay, um, that, that we were people that loved God. And because we loved God, we loved and served others and loved one another and called each other to be everything that God wants us to be. A holy nation who proclaim his excellencies, both in life and in lesson, both in lecture and in living. That's what God has called us to. Watch this. Here's the story. It's it's when Jesus entered a village. We know that village is Bethany by reading other places. And and Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister, Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with activity to impress Jesus. And, uh, and, and, And she was trying to prepare everything to make him all impressed with what she did because she wanted to welcome and host him. And she came up to him and she said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. And Jesus responded and said, Martha, Martha, why are you worried and bothered about so many things? There's only one thing that is necessary. And Mary has chosen the good part and I'm not gonna take it away from her. Jesus is saying to us right here that that we shouldn't be... um, concerned with the busyness of ministry, but, but the presence of abiding. And if we do abide, you're going to find out that Mary did a lot of things and Martha later became an abider. But sometimes we get that priority messed up. And not only that, I think church leaders are sometimes satisfied with the former and not the latter. They just want attendance and not people attending. Now watch, I'm going to give you just real quickly four things that happen when um, you make religious activity or religious attendance a bigger deal than relationally abiding with Jesus. So, So here's what happened. It says, Martha came to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care? The first thing that happens is you'll accuse God of indifference because you've been told that if you're busy doing what God wants you to do and that things are gonna go well with you, there's gonna be health for you, there's gonna be wealth, your ministry is going to prosper, your acclaim will prosper. And you say, God, how come all these things aren't happening to me in the way that I want them to do? God, you're incompetent to note who really loves you because look at all that I'm doing. Again, 
Activity's good. We are not to be merely hearers who delude ourselves, but to be doers of the word. But if you're a doer without abiding and understanding why you do it, we are not people who are performance-based acceptance people. We are acceptance-based performers. We do what we do because of the love of God, not because we're trying to impress God. We want people to attend the gathering of the saints, not because it makes me feel good that you're here, but because it's how you're reminded of what you should do, not when you gather in my presence, but when we scatter and abide with the presence of the king. Secondly, she said, my sister has left me. Not only will you accuse God of indifference and incompetence, you'll start to attribute to others laziness. Or you'll arrogantly accuse them of not loving God as much as you do because you're doing all these things. You don't ever miss church. You dutifully tithe 10%. You you care for people out there. But listen, if if there's not a deep abiding, if there's not a, a focus on being a biblical Christian, not a doer, not somebody who says my works are enough, but somebody who says my walk with you is everything. And when you walk with Christ, you can't help but work in the way that he would work. But the call to being biblical and not just religious activity is the thing that is here. If you're not careful to get this order correctly, you'll accuse God of indifference or incompetence. You'll attribute to others laziness or arrogantly um, see yourself as um, somebody who loves God more than others. And watch what she says next. She goes, I'm doing all the serving alone. Which is, you'll act like you're the only one doing anything that should impress God. Look what I'm doing. Isn't this amazing? I don't miss church. I don't stream. I come. (laughs) And then look at the last thing she says. Then you, Jesus, God and Lord, tell her to help me. You will assume the throne and start giving orders to God. Because God, if you had any sense, you would do things the way that I want you to do them. Say, listen, gang, the, the thing that built this church was God in his grace reminding us that what he wanted from us was for us to be concerned not with religious activity or religious attendance, but for us to abide with him and to attend as an overflow of that to his good works. We were committed to being biblical and not big. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, who was one of the more famous American pastors and was a part of the Great Awakening, is famous for his resolutions. And his resolutions were, were times that he sat down before the Lord and he said, I'm gonna be about these things. It grew to almost over, well, well over 70 during his lifetime, but the very first resolution he ever wrote down was this one, Revolution One, I will live for God. I will live for God. And then he said, secondly, my second resolution is this, if no one else does, I still will. I don't care if nobody else wants to live for God, I still will. And I will call people to be biblical Christians, not to come to my church. What's interesting is as Jonathan Edwards did this, he was actually fired from his church. This most famous of American pastors, this great prophet of God was fired from his church. They dismissed him. They said, we don't want you leading us anymore. And they went and got a teacher in accordance with their own desires. Does that sound familiar? Can I just tell you this? He built this with a group of folks and he's added to it with now thousands of more folks who think this way. Our job is not to make this place bigger. Our job is to make this place biblical. We are going to measure our success by our ability to be and make disciples. Faithfulness 
equals success. It's interesting, um, when Jesus was um, here on earth, he said, listen, I'm going to call you 12 to follow me. I'm going to grow it down to 11, and this 11 will change the world. Today, pastors are so concerned, and I think this is the problem with the church in America today. So many people are concerned with size and growth and podcasts and followers. And what Jesus says is just be concerned with me and doing my business. Do it as as loving as you can, but you make sure you do exactly what I've asked you to do. And if it grows, fine. If it doesn't grow, keep sowing the seed of the word. Some people would say, hey, listen, man. Uh, In fact, I was uh, early on in my ministry as God allowed us to start to do some things that were being affirmed, um, we got together. I kind of called the leaders together. I said, hey, let's evaluate what we're, gonna, what we're doing right here and, and um, how we can improve it. And there was an elder in the room that actually raised his hand, not here. And he just said, I'll tell you the first thing we're gonna do. We're not gonna change anything. Because look, man, this, thing is, this thing's cracking. Look, it's growing. It went from 30 to 2,000. We're not gonna change anything. And I just said to him, I go, let me just ask you a quick question. I go, I go, look, maybe we don't, but I want to understand why you think we shouldn't change anything. And I'm concerned that because we've added 1,970 people over the last six months, you think this is working. Because we're not to measure our success by size. We're to measure our success by our ability to be and make disciples. And it was the beginning of a long conversation that, that got me to a place where I realized that, that maybe um, it would be wise to, to start something somewhere with everybody who thought that way. I was recently, in fact, this week I flew to D.C. and um, I was up there doing some stuff with just the whole life issue and I had a chance to encourage um, other leaders and, and, and strategize together how we could improve what we're doing. Um, and I also then spent some time with a good friend of mine who, who has an amazing church up there right there. I mean, like a stone's throw from the Supreme Court building, two stone's throw from the Capitol building. About a thousand member church. It's been around for over a hundred years. He's only pastored for like 25, but it's an amazing work of God. They've got a residency much like we do. And I was up there to spend some time with them and him talking about church planning and talking about the responsibility of shepherds of those particular people that gathered in a church. Now, some of those young people that were getting ready to start didn't know who I was, didn't know much about us and what we were a part of together. And uh, my buddy Mark, in the midst of talking to them about what the job of the church was gathered and what the job of leadership was, the mature believers in the church, is he said, Todd, some people say that we're too big. There's a thousand people here. And that there's no way we should be a church of a thousand if we're serious about really shepherding the flock of God among us. What do you say to that? And before I could say anything, a couple of those guys go, yeah, I mean, we think he's right on the edge because you can't have a thousand people and be, you know, that's, that's right on the edge. We're not really sure. But now what they didn't realize is they were in the room with somebody who had 20 times that in effect. And I just said, I go, well, let me ask you a question, Mark. Has anybody ever said this to you? Hey, Mark, your church is too biblical. Right? Because what size got to do with it? And the scripture doesn't say, hey, um, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe everything I've commanded you, up to about 60 people, and then you're done. Stop right there. Okay? <laughs> And, uh, and then you need to find somebody else who's going to take care of the rest. But I think you can probably, with another couple of elders, handle 60 people. So go and make disciples up to 60. Is that what it says? No, that's not what my Bible says. My Bible just says that you need to be about disciple making. Look, listen, guys, everything that grows isn't good. Everything that grows is alive. But I don't know if uh, you want to just come hang out in my front yard this spring and there will be things in my front yard growing called weeds that are very alive and rapidly advancing and just because they're growing, I don't think they're good. I've had in my body cancer cells and they were growing and multiplying rapidly. 
and it wasn't good. Just because something is big or growing doesn't mean it's good. It means it's alive. Big isn't good. Small isn't good. Good is good. And we were convinced of that. And so that is why we have been consumed with this idea of, are we doing what Jesus wants us to do? And some people have just said, well, Todd, I got to tell you something. You're calling people to be biblical Christians in Dallas, Texas. In Dallas, Texas, there's nothing but churches. And you're crazy if you think you can call people to biblical Christianity in North Texas and have folks go. They will leave your church so quick and go someplace else where folks will let them just come and sit and listen. And I just said to them, good, let their blood be on somebody else's hands. Because I'm not trying to grow numbers. I'm trying to grow people. Let them see pastoral growth. Let them see the work of God in the lives of the members. And those members, because they're going to walk with God, I bet you they're going to be reproducing people like their kind. Because they'll talk about the excellencies of God and the scars that he's healed and the grace that he's had them come into. And there's all kinds of people who want to know about scar healing and grace giving. And I bet you it grows. But let's teach them to observe everything that he has commanded. See, most churches fail at this. I'll talk about the deal. I talk about it a lot. I'll say it in just a minute. But this has not been a new problem. This has been a problem for a long time. In Ezekiel chapter 33, uh, God is talking to the prophets of Israel, specifically to Ezekiel. And he said, Ezekiel, I'm just going to remind you what your job is. This is your job. You're a watchman. You're to keep your eyes out for air and that which threatens people. This holy nation that is called by me and chosen by me, if they don't do and walk with me and do the things that, um, that will lead to life, they're not going to experience life. And so you've got to tell them when they're not life-giving people walking with the life-giving God. And he uses this illustration. You're like a watchman on the wall. And if you tell the people that trouble is coming and they don't listen to you, then when the trouble comes, their blood will be in their own hands. But if you, because you don't want to be an alarmist and don't want to bother them and stir them up, and you just tell them what they want to hear, even though you know they need to hear something else, then trouble will still come to them, but their blood will be on your hands. God built this with us being convinced that we should be faithful watchmen and not really be concerned about how people heard what we said. Now, we want to make sure we say it well and not make the way we say it the problem, but we want to say it. We are servants of God and stewards of the mysteries of Christ. That's how he built this. At the very end of that same chapter in Ezekiel 33, God tells Ezekiel, Ezekiel, you're going to do your job, but I'm just going to warn you and remind you that everybody's going to like it. And that's okay, you just still stay about it. This is what it says in Ezekiel 33, verses 30 through 33. It says, as for you, son of man, your fellow citizens who talk about you by the walls and the doorways of the houses, they'll speak to one another, each to his brother, saying, come now and hear what the message is which comes forth from the Lord. They come to you as people come and sit before you as my people and hear your words, but they do not do them. Now watch this. Remember the problem with Martha and Mary? They got it wrong. They were doing things, but they did not sit before the Lord. They were earning their way, and she was busy trying to impress God with her activity. She was religiously active, but not have relational affection with God. There wasn't a love for him. There was a need to impress him and perform for him. That's dead religion. But then there are other people who say, oh, let's listen to what they say, but let's not do them. That is not faith that lives. It's dead faith. It's not faith at all. And so what, what God said to Ezekiel is they'll come as people come and sit before you as my people and hear your words, but they don't do them for they, 
do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth and their heart goes after their gain. Behold, here's what you are to them, Ezekiel. You are to them like a sensual song, like one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument for they hear your words, but they do not practice them. Hey, maybe there's nothing you can do about it, but make sure, Ezekiel, that you keep calling them to listen, to act, to speak truth, to admonish, to remind, to rebuke, to encourage, to call, to admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. Don't just want them to keep running your album. Don't want them to listen to your podcast. Don't just them go, our teacher is orthodox. Call them to orthopraxy. Don't just have good doctoral statement. Don't be satisfied they all fill up your buildings and go, good teaching, sir, good teaching. Call them. Call them to be faithful, abiding works of God. For they are his workmanship, meaning the people of God are his workmanship. They were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared before them that they should walk in them. And don't cut a deal with them. Don't, don't just say to them, come and listen to me and validate me as a great Orthodox pastor or even as a winsome um, communicator of the word of God and give me enough money to keep the lights on and to build more buildings, put more butts in seats, have a greater budget, and I won't ask too much of you. And we'll both tell each other we're doing what God wants us to do. God did not build this church with that mindset, and no true biblical church is built that way. We don't cut a deal. We run hard after God. Uh, I, I, I think about my um, guy I read, a guy named Archibald um, Brown, who um, followed a guy named C.H. Spurgeon as pastor. Okay, Spurgeon is still called the prince of preachers. I mean, he is the standard by which all preaching is still to this day measured. Spurgeon was so effective at what he did, even in, in what was um, increasingly godless England, um, he became a pastor of a megachurch. They had to build a bigger and bigger community for folks to gather to hear the word of God. And there were multiple times that Spurgeon would tell people, hey, listen, if you're here today and you know the grace of God and you're abiding with him and you're about the work of God, I'm gonna ask you to get up right now and leave. Because the internet's not invented yet and nobody can stream online and there are thousands of people who I think don't know the Lord who need to come in here and hear the message I'm about to give and the room would empty and fill again. And so here's the guy who's gonna follow that, right? And so you're kind of like, okay, I'm gonna follow that. I gotta make sure that I, I don't lose people because I don't wanna be the guy that, that let Spurgeon's church dwindle. Here's the only problem. It wasn't Spurgeon's church. What Spurgeon was doing, though, is preaching the word of God and calling people to a life of obedience and fellowship with one another. He was talking to a very specific people that were a part of something to do something in a specific way for a specific reason. What Archibald Brown said this to preachers, he said, listen to you, me, when, as you get ready to fill pulpits or you follow someone like I did, cease to amuse, but instead seek to arouse. Shun the clap of a delighted audience and listen for the sobs of convicted ones. I don't think Archibald Brown was just telling that to other pastors. I think he was reminding himself, I don't want to be as winsome as Spurgeon, as illustrative as Spurgeon. I don't want to amuse people. I maybe won't be able to do it the way that he did it. Not as many people will maybe want to come to my services, but I want to tell you this, when they come, I don't want to live for the clap of delighted audiences. I want to listen for the sobs of convicted men who hear me when I warn them of the dangers of life without God. Look, I, I got to just tell you something. Um, I, I do, when I communicate, I want to entertain you, okay? I do, and I, I, I mean that 
like really, okay? The word entertainment means to hold somebody's attention. That's literally what the word entertainment means. And I wanna do that. Now you might say, hey bro, if that's your one job, you're not doing a great job. You're missing the burger with the cheese, okay? Now that might be your view. Okay, but, but, but I will just tell you, I seek to hold your attention. It's a sin to bore people with the word of God. But watch me, I don't want to amuse you. I never want to amuse you. I agree with Brown, cease to amuse, seek to arouse. Amusement literally means, right? To, to muse is to think. A, in front of any word, means it's not that thing. When you go to an amusement park, you go there to not think. That's what an amusement park is. Right? You just kind of check out mentally. That's why they can charge you 80 bucks to stand in line for three hours to ride a three-minute ride while you stand next to sweaty people in awkward halter tops. I mean, clearly, <laughs> clearly you're not thinking if you do that, right? And so when you come here, I want you to think, but I want to hold your attention while we're talking about the only thing that matters, the living word of God, which leads to life. And so I love the words of Archibald Brown. I, I will also tell you, you know, I mean, again, size, size is not the thing. There's another guy, not related to Archibald, who was a, a, a pastor um, also in the 18th century. His name was John Brown. And um, he had also a residency and some students that kind of came through his ministry. And um, there was a young man in his ministry that had been ordained to take over a small congregation. And this is what John Brown wrote to him. He said this, he said, I know the vanity of your heart and that you will feel mortified that your congregation is very small in comparison with those of your brethren around you. But assure yourself on the word of this old man, he writes, that when you come to give an account of them for the Lord Jesus Christ at his judgment seat, you will think that you had plenty enough. That's a good word. And it comes right out of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, where it says that these are your leaders who love you and if they're biblical leaders, you should listen to them because they keep watch over your souls as somebody who will give an account. Can I just remind you of something? We are a kingdom of priests. While that has application to me, it has application to you. This is the pastor's conference and we are equipping the saints for the work of service and the scripture says each one of us will give an account for the work that we have done. Your job isn't just to attend. Your job is to tend to one another. Jesus said to his disciples, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Then tend my lambs. Do you love me? Don't just come to listen to the shepherd speak. Be a shepherd. Get in the busyness of life together. Encouraging the fainthearted, admonishing the unruly, helping the weak, being patient with all men. It's what we do. Godly leaders don't care how big their church gets. They care how big your heart is for God. And as you think about your life this week, has that been your concern with those around you? Do you want to be more popular or do you just go, no, I want others' hearts to be big for God? In doing this and being that kind of person, you'll, you'll be like Jesus. And, and Jesus was always concerned about the hearts of people, so much so that, um, that when people followed him and his ministry was becoming increasingly popular, he wanted to make sure that it wasn't just growing and he didn't think with his mindset, I don't know what we need to change, but we're not gonna change much. 
because these miracles and the things I'm doing in front of people are really working. John 6, this is right after the feeding of the 15,000, right? Why? Because the Bible says 5,000. The Bible um, was uh, produced in its day and age. They counted adult men. We know there were women there. We know there were children there. And so it was probably 15,000 people. You fed them with five loaves and two fish. And the people were like, that dude's something right there. Okay, he feeds us and we didn't have to work very hard. We listen to religious messages and we eat. Let's follow him some more. And so they did. And Jesus says this to them in chapter uh, six, verse 26. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me. You're trying to follow me now? Not Not because you just saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. In other words, the signs didn't point to the truth. You just liked the signs. You liked what came your way. And he said this, don't work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. That's why I did the sign, so you know that I am who I say that I am. I'm just gonna make a note right here, very simply, that that pastors who work to get crowds are working for food that perishes. And they're offering people food that perishes. Food that leads to everlasting life is biblical belief. We know that because right after this, the people go, well, what works must we do that we would do the works of God? And then in verse 29, Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom he has sent. And because you believe in him, it doesn't mean you gather in rooms. It means you scatter faithfully. It means you do life together. It means you are his disciple. You learn his ways and you live dependent upon him. And if dependence is the goal, weakness is an advantage, and if you realize you don't have what it takes to feed people, then you better be closely related to Jesus, and you better get your food for them from him and feed his sheep. So you devote yourself daily to the word of God. You pursue them relationally. You live authentically. You admonish faithfully. You counsel biblically. You engage missionally because that's your job. It's not a good thing for pastors just to work for food, if you will, or, or, or followers that perishes. After this, Jesus kind of continues on. He just, he just doesn't let up. He says, this is what it means to believe in me. I, I, I am the manna from heaven. I'm not just Joseph and Mary's son, he goes on to say. You have no life in yourselves. He says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. This is a very difficult metaphor. He goes on even to say this. I am better than the manna that fell from heaven that your forefathers ate in the wilderness. And the people heard this, eat my flesh? What does Jesus mean, eat me, eat my flesh? What's he mean, drink me, drink my blood? What's Jesus mean when he says that he's better than the manna from God that preserved the people in the wilderness? And Jesus says, I'll tell you what's better. Those people who ate the manna that came from heaven, they still died. But if you eat of me, if you take what God offers you through my broken body and shed blood, you'll never die again. And when he said this, many of his disciples in verse 60 said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, changed his message so they wouldn't leave. No, it's not what it says. When people grumble, I will just tell you, don't let the grumbling of people guide you in your leadership. What Jesus did right here is he said, does this cause you to stumble? There's more difficult things coming from you. You're gonna see me ascend into heaven. It's the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I've spoken to you are the words of life. But there are some of you who don't believe that's the problem. 
Jesus is teaching us right here, hey, let the word of God be your guide, even if it costs you disciples. That's how God built this. We said that the word of God is gonna be our guide. It's gonna be our authority, it's gonna be our conscience, we're gonna be firm where it's firm, we're gonna be flexible where it's flexible, and we're gonna do what he wants us to do. In fact, Peter said to him, man, listen, Jesus, I don't know if you're noticing in verse 66, but a lot of people are taken off. And it says, many of his disciples were withdrawing and we're not walking with anymore. So Jesus said to the 12, you wanna go with them? Because you guys can. I'm not looking for a big crowd. I'm looking for people who will take up the cross and follow me. I don't want fans, I want followers. That's how he built this, with followers. And there are hundreds and thousands of them here. And we don't think we're better than anybody else. We have received grace. We're just one beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. And when we take that bread of life, it changes us. It's life to us, and it changes the way we live. Because what happened is we found a book, man, and we just found a book, and we looked at it, and we, we were, instead of complaining about what others weren't doing, we just said, we're gonna do it. We're gonna be God's people. We found a book, we started reading it, and we go, what do Christians do? And they don't build buildings, they don't grow budgets, and they don't add butts to seats, they make disciples. And if it just so happens one day we have a building and our budget is bigger, and there's more disciples, glory to God, glory to God. That's how we built this. But we're not trying to get more people to come. Things that are alive grow, and what could be alive in many large churches is not healthy. Because people will always go where there are teachers according to their own desire, and then some people, because they want to be taught by God, will go where there are teachers who love them enough to say, I don't want you just to gather with me and validate me with your presence. I want to do the business of God with you, and you shepherd me and I shepherd you, and we call each other to everything that Jesus wants us to. That's how he built this. Faithfulness is success. He built this because we want to be biblical and not big. We found a book just like Josiah did. Second Kings chapter 22. It's a story of a guy that had um, come behind generations of godless leadership. Some of the darkest leadership in all of Judah's history. He became king when he was eight years old and 18 years later when he was 26, he kind of goes, you know what? I think Israel has some relationship with this God. That's supposed to be his temple. It looks kind of run down. And so he finally took his steward, a, a guy named Shaphan, and, and he said, hey, go over there to the, um, the temple and take the money that people have been giving. Let's use it to restore the temple. And so he went, uh, uh, Shaphan went to the temple and uh, he got Hilkiah the priest. And uh, Hilkiah the priest uh, went to architects and to designers and said, hey, we're gonna redo the temple with the temple money, imagine that. And they started to do that. And so the architects and the builders came back to Hilkiah at one point and go, hey, we were in this one little closet, we we're gonna you know, knock this wall down and expand it, get more light in here and kinda you know, just do an extreme home makeover, make this place look nice. And there was some stuff in here, it looks like a scroll, there's some writing on it, so we can't read, you, you take it. And so Hilkiah took it, and because he was a steward, he, he took it and, and uh, he gave it to the scribe, and the scribe read it. Turns out it was the word of God. The Bible is the Torah. It's what God said from Sinai. This is how you can find life. They lost the book of life, but there was still religious activity and they're rebuilding the temple, but there was no work of God that was going on there. And when, and when Shaphan read this thing, he went back to Josiah and he said, Josiah, I got some good news and some bad news. The good news is I read a book. The bad news is it's not gonna turn out well for us if we keep doing this. And so it says right there in um, verse eight of chapter 22, 
It says, uh, he'll cry, gave the book to Shaphan to read it. He took it in verse 10. Shaphan the scribe told the king, um, the priest gave me a book, and then he read it in the presence of the king, and then in verse 11, the king heard it and said, I agree, we're in trouble, and he tore his clothes. Because we're not doing anything that this book says, even though there's multiplication in Israel. It looks like we're multiplying troubles. And so they sought the word of the Lord, and they went and they found a prophet and said, what should we do? And the prophet got word back to them in 2 Kings chapter 22 and verse 19. And the prophet said, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord, I'm gonna let you experience some grace. And then Josiah did an amazing thing. He took the book of the law and he gathered, it says in verse 20, in chapter 23, verses one, it says, so the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem and he went to the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him and they sat down and he said, I'm gonna read you this book that we found and I'm gonna see if your hearts are tender like by the grace of God mine is. I'm gonna see if you wanna humble yourself under this book like I do and let's see if we wanna be the people of God together. That's how he built this thing. We found a book. And we didn't say, hey, this culture, this generation won't take somebody leading him according to this book. We said, we don't care. We just wanna be tenderhearted and humble before God and we're gonna follow this book. And we're not gonna try and be bigger. We're gonna not try and say we're better than anybody else. We just wanna be people of the book who measure their success by their ability to be and make disciples. That's how he built this thing. There's so much about church growth that is out there. When we first started and, and, and we're sharing this with people, you know, folks kept saying to us, Todd, that's never gonna work. People are gonna leave and go somewhere else. We said, let their blood be in somebody else's hands. This is not gonna be a me church. This is gonna be his church. And we believe if we do what he wants, he's gonna do something to glorify himself if we just abide with him. We actually made a video. It's dated. You're gonna see the old logo at the end of it. But we showed this early. I think we still showed it. Every membership class we do because we wanna let you know what we're about right here. We're not looking for fans. We're looking for followers. Watch this. Imagine a church where every member is passionately, wholeheartedly, and recklessly calling the shots. Hey, what about a church that starts when I get there? Okay. When you arrive, we begin. I want a pastor to come to my house to deliver the sermons. No problem. Expect a knock at your door within 24 hours. Financially, Sherry and I don't give a lot, but we'd like to know who does and how much. All right. If you join now, you'll know what every person gives in detail. When I'm in the church service, can my car get a buff and a wax? Not just that, but an oil change and a tune-up. Hey, how about tickets to the Super Bowl? That's asking too much. I'm serious. If I'm going to join, I want tickets to the big game. All right. You join now, and we'll get you there. I like a pony. Look in your backyard. Watermark Community Church. You call the shots. We'll deliver. <laughs> oh, man. That is not how we built this. Right? Old logo. Same logos. Same word. We were just calling people, say, this is not about us. This is not about me. I don't need your validation. I'm gonna give an account for the way I serve. You're gonna give an account for the way that you serve with me. My job is to equip the saints to work in the service of the king with me. And there's gonna be a day when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's go, church. Let's be his people. Let's measure our success by our ability to be and make disciples. And if we gotta grow it down to 11, let's change the world. 
But man, if God's grace is at work in our midst and he grows it to 11, 22, 25, 30,000, glory to God. Glory to God. That's how he built this. Father, I thank you for the chance just to sit and look at your book and to teach it and to remind ourselves of what is true and what is right and what is holy and what is good. And I pray, Father, that we would just continually to be about it. We would not merely be hearers who delude ourselves, but we'd be doers of the word who sit at your feet, trust in you. And because we trust in you, we stand up and we live with you. We don't just listen, we live. And we love in your name. I thank you for what you're gonna continue to teach us and remind us about how you build your church that the gates of hell won't stand against. And I pray that we would be more about it this week than we've ever been because we've listened and gathered together. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us of your goodness and your love and the cross sufficiency for all of us wherever we are in the spectrum of separation from you. Thank you, Father, that you've brought us here that we might be reminded of how to live for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. When we started, 